Exclusive Books is delighted to present another homebrew podcast series, a celebration of South African writers and their books. Now 25 years old, Exclusive Books Homebrew 2022 is not the same old story, but a mirror and a window into South Africa, where we are, where we've been, and where we can go. A remarkable selection of history, fiction, memoirs, current affairs, and children's books on our most pressing and relevant topics, from identity to feminism, corruption to corporates, self-love and identity, and everything in between. Incisiveness, humor, self-reflection, and hope abound. Check out the full selection in all exclusive bookstores and online. Today's episode of Homebrew is presented by advocacy journalist and poet, Lerato Sibanda. The book Nuclear Inside South Africa's Secret Deal by award-winning legal journalist Karen Morn is a stratified narrative of Jacob Zuma's zany zeal in securing a nuclear deal with Russia during his time in office. Written in consolidation with Kirsten Pearson, a former insider from the National Treasury, this book casts light on the dizzying dynamic between Zuma and his firing line of finance ministers, his pal-ship with President Vladimir Putin, and his mired relationship and marriage to Manduli, the shunned wife. Hi, Karen. Welcome to Home Brew. So lovely to have you. Thank you for that amazing introduction. I appreciate it. Only our pleasure. So please read us an excerpt from your book. During his interview with his son, Zuma revealed for the first time that he had reached out directly to President Vladimir Putin, who he referred to as my friend, when he started suspecting that he had been poisoned. Quote, at that time, I was indeed sick. It was very different. At that time, I contacted my friend in a country that we went to to say I'm sick because I knew that the poison was not like a root that was dug up and made to be a poison, but it was actually a very sophisticated kind of poison. And I knew that my friend, who was a president at that time in his country, would be the only one who will assist me. He sent doctors to see me, who then recommended that indeed I should go to a place where we finally went with him. And I knew that once I went there, this will be defeated. And it was defeated. And they finally found that it was poison. Zuma claimed, as he had done before, that the reason that he was targeted was his role in the anti-apartheid struggle, as well as, quote unquote, my political beliefs. The doctors who had cured him did not know how he had managed to survive, Zuma said, quote, the dose that I had in my body, no human being could live. A former senior law enforcement official involved in the investigation of the alleged Zuma poisoning has backed up Mflovo and Zuma's claims that the president was only able to receive the treatment he needed from Russian doctors. This, he insisted, was because South African doctors were unable to identify the substance used to poison him. Quote, Former President Zuma did go to Russia, 
He did receive treatment in Russia. He was hospitalized in a secure facility and his life was saved there because the doctors here couldn't pick up what the poison was, he said. Despite this, any medical proof that Zuma was actually poisoned appears to have been completely absent from the Hawks docket presented to KwaZulu-Natal prosecution's head, Elaine Zungu, in 2019. She maintained that there was, quote unquote, no evidence that Zuma had ingested any known toxin. It is also apparent that the investigation by the state security agency into the Zuma poisoning was amateurish and seemingly unlawful. David McLawball, as head of the SSA, was, according to Ntuli Zuma, a driving force in that investigation. A key confidant of the president, he became integrally involved in the messy Zuma family fallout that ensued after the eviction of Ntuli Zuma and her children from the president's residence, Adam Kandler. But Lobo informed her when she tried to return to the homestead after being forced to move from one hotel or guest house to another, that she would not be allowed to go back. According to Tuli Zuma, she confronted Matlobel after seeing two men, quote unquote, pretending to bribe outside one of the many hotels where she had been forced to stay and told him that, quote, should I be killed, my blood will be on his hands. I told him, I am not going to kill myself over this. And if I am killed, he is responsible. I was living in fear for my life. After that, he stopped taking my calls." Unquote. Thank you so much, Karen. So you wrote this book along with Preston Pearson. So who is she and how did your relationship with her come about? Well, Kirsten is a former uh, intelligence official. She worked in the GTAC unit of, of Treasury, which is a very important unit with appraisal of big capital projects. And I had known her prior to writing the book through a guy that I was dating. She was his cousin. Subsequent to that, she had come forward with this idea of doing a book on big Treasury projects that had sort of been pushed during the Zima administration and the way in which Treasury had to resist them. And one of those was the nuclear deal. And so we were brought together by Jill Moody, who was then at ND Publishers, and we sort of looked at what we were going to do. And we kept circling back to the nuclear deal as kind of the biggest act of attempted state capture that South Africa had come through. And we eventually decided that this was really a topic that needed to be interrogated in a book because of all the implications for South Africa had it gone through and what it tells us about our geopolitical status and the allegiances of the Zuma administration and the ANC even today. You know, I was so fascinated by your coverage of Manduli, as you've just read in the extract, because I remember during, you know, the time when it was being covered in the news that Zuma was allegedly poisoned, there weren't many comments from her side. So you, Karen, how did you manage to win her trust and bring her to that place where she opened up and shared with you all that she did? I went through her lawyer and I felt a huge burden for her because she was basically living under the shadow of being called an accused poisoner with absolutely no evidence. Mm-hmm. And it was manifestly apparent that there was absolutely no truth to the claims against her. Mm-hmm. So between myself and her lawyer, Ulrich Rue, I basically started 
messaging, talking to the NPA constantly, saying, you know, what is the status of this investigation? He was writing letters to them. You know, when, when Shamila Batroy came into office, I think we were both basically trying to get answers from the state about what the status of this investigation was because she was living under this cloud and it was manifestly unfair. And then once, you know, we got the letter from the NPA saying that we're not going to prosecute, there doesn't appear to be any evidence, Zuma himself has not made a statement, mm-hmm. I broke that story. And subsequent to that, Ulrich said, look, she will talk to you. And she gave us an interview. And I think the most important thing for me was that it was very obvious that she still loves Jacob Zuma. And that she very much saw what had happened to her. She didn't want to blame him for what had happened. Mm -hmm. And I think that the, the reason that she opened up so much was that I just asked her really about her experiences, the emotional toll that it had had on her, what had happened. And very much stressed that this was complete distortion and fabrication of what, you know, what she'd been Mm. accused of. So because I don't think there was an overt agenda to bash her husband, it was just about telling her story and giving her the space and time to really explain what had happened to her. It was a very emotive and very vulnerable and open interview. And I'm, I'm always grateful to her for having the bravery to tell that story because I think it is such an integral part of the book. And it also shows the human costs of the former president's kind of deep paranoia and suspicion that this woman who had done absolutely nothing wrong ended up half a decade of her life living in fear um, and being falsely accused of being a poisoner. Honestly, um, Karen, kudos to you and Crescent because I found that the way that you profiled her, obviously, from the questions that you chose to ask her was so compassionate and I'm sure she, you know, feels vindicated from your coverage because indeed, you know, in the public domain, she was seen as the cheater and the murderer, as you put it. So this is groundbreaking investigation. I mean, you had to comb through, Karen, so many documents, current affairs, bilateral agreements, like, lady, how did you manage to keep balanced, you know, through all of that (laughs) tedious work? I think that working with Kirsten was fantastic because she is a former Treasury official. She understands how procurement is supposed to work. And she's an incredible researcher. So we worked on this thing for three years. And the bulk of that time was just spent reading. We only started writing right at the end because we didn't want to write a book where we didn't feel like we had a firm grasp on the subject matter. And nuclear procurement is so intimidating. You know, it can be a very overwhelming topic. You feel like, oh, maybe I shouldn't write about this because, you know, I need all these technical expertise. And I think the pivotal thing with us was we just read. We just read and read. We bought prior requests. I read, you know, like the entire court record for the Earth Life Africa case, which caused the nuclear agreement with Russia to be overturned. And then also just speaking to people, you know, hearing their stories and everything sort of fitting in together. I think that was the point at which I felt like, okay, I'm comfortable. I can write this. And I think that what we tried to do was make it as accessible and readable as possible and to really spark a conversation, to outline the facts as as they happen, but also to give the context and to try and thread things together so that people could get a kind of tapestry of information that you could see what was going on. I think that was a really big part of this project. 
It was. I liked how you gave context to the reasoning and the motivations behind Njanjanene's firing, you know, because that was a big story within South Africa's news landscape. And there were so many unanswered questions. So kudos to you once again that you really did broaden the context to that. I can imagine that many Zuma loyalists are not really happy <laughs> with this book and with you. Have you gotten any interesting feedback, perhaps DMs, even from the former president himself? Well, one of his former lawyers, interestingly enough, actually messaged me and said that he had read the book and that he thought that, that the book <laughs> had been quite sensitive okay. in sort of writing about the former president's poisoning and what had happened. I think the important thing was that we actually spoke to the former president and that I put the allegations directly to him. I said, you know, there was allegations that the ANC got money from Russia and he was like, no, that's propaganda. This is untrue. So he had the opportunity to address that. And he very firmly came out and said, yes, I was pro a nuclear deal with Russia. And here's why, because of the apartheid era connections to the USSR. So there was a real effort to get his side of things. And then, of course, subsequent to that, we used his evidence in the Zondo inquiry. We used the interview that, you know, from that excerpt that I just read to you with his son, Jodazane. So there was an attempt to use his words as much as is possible to kind of put forward what he was pushing for. And I think that was important. I mean, the reality is, is that, we have been cast in a landscape which I think is deeply unfair to the South African public where we are constantly asked to choose sides and it's nonsense. We should be as critical of Cyril Ramaphosa and his decisions as we were of Jacob Zuma. It's about holding power to account but I think it suits particular interests within South Africa to make it out like you're either on one side or the other. And basically, it's two groups of political elites battling each other for dominance. That has nothing to do with the South African public. The South African public wants a functional government. They want to have their electricity all the time. They want a safe place. We all want to be safe. We want to know that rule of law works. We want to feel like this, this is a country which has a future for all our children. And so this narrative that you have to choose sides and get bashed by whoever side perceives you to be anti them is just nonsense. And I think one of my big things is just to be like, you know what, if you want to criticize me on the facts of what I write or you think that I got it wrong, let's have that discussion. I'm not immune to that. But if it's just a general die, bitch, die kind of narrative, (laughs) how is that useful to me? It's not. It's not, exactly. And Karen will keep doing what Karen does, right? Exactly. <laughs> I'm a city on a hill. Remember, you don't go and take your lights and put it under the bed. No. I'm a Christian. I always believe, you know, that verse that says, what use is salt but loses its saltiness. So I'm just going to stay salty because I'm not here to be intimidated and I'm not here to be putting my light under a bed because that's not what God purposed for my life. So mm-hmm. I'm not going to do it. Shine, sister. <laughs> so, just one more deep question that I have to get clarity on. Would I be correct in saying that this book is not just about the failed nuclear deal between South Africa and Russia, but that the load shedding crisis also factors in to this whole puzzle? Definitely. I think that the important thing is for us to really understand how we got to where we are now. And I think that, you know, 
we have had this really unfortunate pattern where our energy decisions, technocratic decisions that we're making are being shaped by the political agendas of whoever happens to be in charge. You know, globally, this is the reality of intense kind of corruption and nepotism and favors for friends, et cetera, et cetera. And that has had massive consequences for us. You know, ESCOM was captured. You know, the Zondo Inquiry report yeah. makes that very clear. And people were put in positions where they ran power plants into the ground. Maintenance wasn't done. Billions of rands were siphoned off to politically connected family and to politically connected companies. And we are in a space of reckoning now with that. So we have to understand how we got into this place. But we also, as a public, need to start saying, this isn't good enough. We don't want our president to be saying on the one hand, and Andre de Reit is saying on one hand, that renewable energy is the future. And we committed to all of this, independent power producers, and then have greater montage pushing a coal agenda, pushing a nuclear agenda with no coherence between the two. The South African public needs to know that we are not going to have a replication of a nuclear deal where, because we're in crisis, we're prepared to sign on to anything that's going to get us more stable energy. So the car power ship deal, all of these kind of things that keep coming up, keep speaking to a state that is not making decisions in the interest of all South Africans, but is about enriching a politically connected few. And I think that's what the book exposes, is that our decision-making isn't being shaped by, you know, science, cost, feasibility studies. It's being shaped by the whims of whoever happens to be in power. Karen, what did you enjoy most about the writing process and writing nuclear? I think one of the most sort of heartbreaking but deeply touching aspects was the courage of people who stood up and even when it cost them enormously. And in front of the book, we actually say something along the lines of, you know, this is for all the people who stand up against what they know to be wrong. History is shaped for the better by you. And I think the story of South Africa, you know, when we came from apartheid Thousands of people sacrificed their lives for this country. You know, people died. People are still don't know where their children are. Nopatula Samalani's mother, you know, Fila Ndwandwe, who's 23 years old and breastfeeding when she was murdered by the apartheid police. And her body only recovered 10 years later. Ahmed Timo, Steve Biko, uh, Matthew Koniwe, Fort Kalata, whose son is my very good friend. You know, these people fought and died for our country. Our country is miraculous. People thought there was going to be civil war. There wasn't. But people keep writing us off and we keep fighting back. And that's what makes us amazing. And someone like Makoma Lakalakala, who, you know, can remember 1976 and embarks on this amazing court action, middle-aged woman who works in the environmental sector, who's passionate about environmental issues, mounts a court case that brings the nuclear deal to a halt. You know, and people are phoning her and saying, who's the white person behind you? And, you know, attacking her, her house is broken into. And her and Liz McDade, they just keep going. You know, and Nene, his courage. Yeah. Um, the courage of the scientists and experts who said, no, we don't believe that nuclear is the answer and left records. I think that, you know, in the face of all of this, sometimes it's easy to feel like, gosh, you know, we're insignificant and we can't do anything. 
that this book proves that two middle-aged women with a good advocate, David Unterhalter, <laughs> can stop a New Year deal. Yes. And, you know, you aren't insignificant. Civil society is so important. We can all make a difference. And we've, now more than ever, we need to make that difference. Has Manduli um, given you feedback on the book? Has she contacted you? Well, I know her lawyer came to the launch and, you know, I, I haven't seen her since then, but I know he was really happy with it and was very, very positive. So I hope that she sees it again as a kind of cementing of her courage and a vindication for her. And I really, in some small way, my journalism and this book can vindicate her so that no one can ever make those claims against her in the future, then that's an amazing thing for me. I think it's really important. And what's the future for Karen as a woman and as a professional? Well, I'm actually working on a new book project, which is about the informal agreement that there is evidence of that the ANC government did with the nationalists to not prosecute apartheid-era crime and the impact that that has had on our society in terms of non-accountability. Because the National Prosecuting Authority has been ordered to conduct an investigation into particularly the Mbeki administration's interference in those apartheid prosecution cases. Oh, wow. Where the Truth Conciliation Commission had recommended about 300 cases that needed to be investigated and criminally prosecuted. And nothing happened because um, there's now clear evidence that the Mbeki administration, including Justice Minister Bridget Mbandla, shut those cases down. And one of the, I think the implications of that in terms of this terrible culture of non-accountability, where high levels of the apartheid state ordered the murders of like 29-year-old teachers and got away with it. I think that's had a profound impact and that's what I really feel like needs to be ventilated. May that light continue to shine, Karen. Indeed, you're not a lamp that is underneath the bed or in a cave. Keep shining your light. So this investigative trail in the book News Here Inside South Africa's Secret Deal will leave any one citizen of Mzanzi gasping and gaping at the subterfuge that lurked behind the doors of Zuma's administration it will awaken you and your sensibilities to the true state of the nation. Thank you so much all for listening in. This exclusive Books Homebrew podcast was spread far and wide with the help of Vodapay. Vodapay is a super app that is available on all mobile networks. On the app, anyone from any network can send and receive money, pay bills and shop the amazing deals, all in one place. It really is one app for anything and everything.